Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Crawl, and you're listening to episode 59 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's podcast episode, I have the honor of chatting with another famous Walt Disney Imagineer, who is none other than Jim Sarno. For those of you who don't know too much about Jim, you'll of course get to learn a little bit more about him in this particular podcast episode, but he was an Imagineer who worked on the opening day team at Epcot, building attractions over at the Land Pavilion, the Imagination Pavilion, Communicore, Spaceship Earth, and more. He worked in the model shop with the opening team. There's even a story in there about how he helped to train Joe Rohde when he started in the model shop at Epcot back in the 1980s. And he worked on so much, and I'm so excited to share all of these stories with you in this podcast episode. At the end of the show, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all of your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair, and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. So as always, because this is the Imagineer podcast, it is always great to bring a guest onto the show who knows a thing or two about Walt Disney Imagineering, who was on the front lines at the company working with the Imagineers as an Imagineer. So I am very happy to have as a guest on the episode today, Jim Sarno. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you here as well. We're going to have to talk quite a bit about your relationship with Harriet Burns because the whole reason we even got introduced was because of my interview with Haley. So, <laughs> right, right. Both uh, connection there. Yeah, it's uh, it was great to to chat with Haley, and I was very happy that she was able to connect me with you because, of course, your name is another one that's out there and is a well-known name in the world of Disney and Imagineering and um, excited to chat with you about your story. But before we get into even talking about Walt Disney Imagineering specifically, I know that you, it's funny how a lot of Imagineers have the same sort of backstory of growing up admiring Disneyland and going to Disneyland. And if I'm not mistaken, you grew up pretty close to Disneyland when you were younger. 
Well, not far. I was in the San Fernando Valley. It was a good uh, 45 minutes there. But, you know, we all grew up in the 50s. Just we couldn't wait to get there. And uh, so it was a big event. And I remember my first trip at five years old. And I think for me, like many people, it it had a personal significance. Uh, My nickname as a kid was Dumbo because my ears stuck out. So I was tormented at school and teased. And when I went to Disneyland, I noticed that all the characters had big ears. And everybody loved them. So I had as good a time as any kid going to Disneyland for the first time. And when it was time to leave, I said, leave me here. I don't want to go back to school. I think I'm in the wrong place. That's uh, Of course, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that's definitely, I I can, I think that most people when they go to Disney don't want to leave, but that I can see why you definitely didn't want to leave. Yeah. It was kind of like, gee, how come everybody loves big ears here? But in, in reality, it's, it's not a good thing. So I came home. I was always into art as a little kid. And I got a shoebox. I started filling it with arts and crafts, all kinds of things. My mom says, Jimmy, what are you doing? I said, I want to build my own Disneyland. <laughs> that was my closest way to feel at home, you know. So it, it was an interest of mine as a young kid building models. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just, I would actually get construction paper and build the furniture in the house. So all in miniature, and little did I know that that was going to end up being my career with Disney. It's so amazing how that happens. And I find that's a yeah. really common thread with a lot of the Imagineers is, you know, like I said, you grew up, you admire Disneyland. If you were fortunate enough to go, then you were even more in love with it when you went. And even for me, having grown up in the late 80s, early 90s, I found the same sort of affinity for Disney from a very young age. And whenever I went, of course, didn't want to leave. And I would come home and do a lot of what you did. Of course, I didn't end up going into the Imagineering field and inevitably decided on a different career path. But I, as a kid, was always drawing. I had a binder. I still have the same binder that I had when I was younger of all the attractions I was drawing. Um, did, was there a particular attraction or land that you really were in love with as a kid? Well, I think it had to be fantasy land. And of course, Dumbo was, uh, I was mesmerized that people got into Dumbo and loved him and flew around and, uh, all of fantasy land was, it, it was more of a reality to me. And I think like a lot of kids, the joy of going there was, you thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if life was like this? Um, and so it, it really put a mark inside of me as to, boy, as an artist, this is what I know I want to do when I was that young. So I, I went through school tortured like most with reading, writing, and arithmetic and everything else. But art was always something that captivated me. I was uh, raised by a family that was very creative Uh, My grandmother from Italy lived with us, and she was an artist herself uh, as a seamstress. So I spent a lot of hours with her doing crafts and doing all kinds of things and uh, carried on through school. And by the time I got to college, I, I wasn't really sure what to do, but I had this sense that I wanted to design children's toys. And I found out it was in New York. I'm in California, and I thought, well, I'm not moving to New York. That's way too far away. 
And so I thought, what could I do in L.A.? And decided to pursue the studio work. And the first job being Sid and Marty Croft. I don't know if you remember them. I've heard the name. I am not as familiar with what they did. Well, you probably remember uh, Magic Mongo, um, Wonderbug, H&R Puffin stuff. Yes, yeah. So you may have heard, these were kids' shows, and they were characters that were dressed up. And so I fell in, well, I didn't fall in, I got hired by an amazing guy named Ken Forsey, and he was the inventor of Teddy Ruxpin. Teddy Ruxpin was one of the first toys that was the craze that every kid had to have for Christmas. And uh, when I met Ken, he had come from Disney, and he had worked on Country Bear Jamboree. And he had thought while he was working on that, he was also in the model shop. He said, wouldn't it be great if kids had their own teddy bear that could talk and sing and entertain them? So he was inventing Teddy Ruxpin without the name at the time. But here we were at Sid and Marty Croft working on uh, costumes and miniatures and uh, props for their shows. And on, on the side, he's working on Teddy Ruxpin. He said, Jim, if I ever get this teddy bear off the ground, you're coming to work for me. So in the meantime, we had done our work. It was time to get laid off. And he said, Jim, I know you would love to be at Disney. And I said, boy, would I ever. He said, I'm going to set up an interview for you. So I was blown away. He sent me over to the model shop. Uh, Bob Sewell was the manager at the time, and this was Imagineering. And they were waiting for the contract from uh, Tokyo Disney to be signed. So they were gearing up hoping for it to happen and they were looking for people to hire and bob said jim you look like you'd fit right in he said as soon as we sign that contract you've got a job wow going back to ken ken was jazzed i couldn't even believe it because what are the odds you're going to be working with a guy like ken forsey and then he's going to set you up to get into imagineering so it's all about who you I, know yeah, it is the timing and who you know, and you never know what that's going to be. So I was very excited. I waited and waited, and, you know, I'd check in with them, and Bob would say, anytime, Jim, just hang in there. So at the time, I had an opportunity to move to Hawaii, and I wanted to take that. And I said to Bob, I said, here is my number. If something comes up, I'm coming right back. So I went over there and lived almost a year, didn't hear a thing. And boy, was I disappointed. Uh, and so that just kind of fizzled out. Uh, yet, as I was old enough to drive and go around the studios, I used to drive by the front gate on Buena Vista and just think, how can I ever get in there? And what is going in on inside those gates? Which I didn't realize that WED was really a few, well, maybe a mile away at the WED building in Glendale. Right. But of course, you know, the gates of the Disney Studios was like you see in TV. You know, if you could get in there, you'd have a chance. So I actually ended up with a job at Hanna-Barbera. Of course, they were doing the cartoons, and they were also providing the full-size costumes for Marineland. And so I was hired into their prop department, uh, working with a lot of animators and uh three-dimensional builders and sculptors. And I did Scooby-Doo, the Flintstones, Hong Kong Fui, all of the Hanna-Barbera costume characters to run around in the amusement parks. 
from there, uh, one of the girls in the shop got a contract with the Muppets to do their full-size costumes from uh, Sesame Street Live. So, you know, one thing led to the next, and believe it or not, I saw an ad in the newspaper of the Valley, and it, it stated that Mapo was looking for plastic fabricators. And I barely knew what that was, but that's what I was doing. So uh, it was my chance. I said, okay, uh, if this is the way I get in, the first time didn't work. I went and applied, and as I was being interviewed, they're looking through my portfolio and said, I think you belong in the model department, the model shop. And I said, no, no, no. I'm really a plastic fabricator. Uh, I love that kind of work. Of course, there was no job I saw for wet imagineering. So I said, get in any way you can and go from there. So I was hired to do the body parts for the animatronics, which was a plastic fabricator, making the fiberglass shells for the bodies. I hated the job. (laughs) (laughs) My father had always said, if you want to get in somewhere, if you have to sweep the floors, go do it. You got to do it, yeah. Yep. So this was his wisdom to me, and I did it. And every day my boss would come by, Jim, how are you liking your job? Oh, I love it. I love it. (laughs) After there a week, I'm starting to get comfortable, and I'm roaming around. And, of course, WED is right there. Now, we're Mapo. And that was stood for Mary Poppins. The money they got from the movie uh, built this huge operation where we built all the parts. It was the cars, the body parts, all that stuff. Uh, But you could roam around the lot. And I got over to the model shop. And I was blown away. Because there was Epcot laid out in the middle of the room uh, at about waist high. And all of the buildings, all the landscape, and this was Imagineering. I, I, I have a feeling that at Mapo, I was considered an Imagineer, but in my brain, it had to be that you were working on something hands-on, building the, the buildings and the interiors of the rides. So I found out who the manager was, and on my lunch break, I convinced her to look at my portfolio. It was Maggie Elliott. Bob had long been gone, and she liked my work. And she said, Jim, I think you're perfect here. We're, we're going to bring you on. She says, now, where are you now? You're on the lot somewhere. I said, I'm at Mapo. She said, we can't hire you. I said, what? She said, no, you're union. We, I, sorry, we can't. So I went back to my plastic body parts. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I said to myself, Every day, my boss has been asking me, if he comes by tomorrow, I'm going to have to get brave. So sure enough, he came by. This is Rick Golding. I forever be grateful to this man. He said, Jim, how do you like your work? I said, I've got to be honest with you. I love that I have this job. I might have even said I love my work. But I said, in all honesty, I went to the model shop. And you had mentioned that in my interview, but I just never thought, there was an option and the manager wants to hire me, but told me she couldn't. He says, she's absolutely right. Well, you can imagine what I'm feeling, you know, of course, He says, come with me to my office. I think this was on a Friday, takes me up to his office. He makes a call. They're talking away. He hangs up. He looks at me and said, Jim, you can never tell anybody in the shop what's going on. 
I, he might have even said, you can never tell anybody any time. <laughs> Rick, if you hear this, I apologize. But, <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, he said to me, Jim, on Monday morning, you report to the model shop. I got wow. hired over there. So I was elated. And of course, you know, I, this has been years of me trying to get in there. And to, not, to go back to the shop and not be able to tell the guys, you know, we all checked out on Friday. And on Monday morning, I'm on the lot, but I'm not in the same department. And I can't say where I went. So after a few days, they're running into me at lunch or break time or something. And I, I didn't know what to say to them except, well, I'm, I'm over in the model shop now. And they're dying to know. And I just had to cut it short and move on and not tell them. But that's how I finally got into the model shop. And I think officially felt like I was an Imagineer. And I can understand that feeling too of you didn't feel like an Imagineer until you reached that goal of actually working in that building where you knew yeah. the magic was happening. Yeah. And of course it was going on everywhere. And yes, all the other people on the lot were, but it was my own brain thinking of when I was a kid and said, I want to work on these rides. And I didn't want to do body parts. I wanted to do the miniatures of what people saw. And so I finally landed where I felt my dream was. And and the shocker on it all was I was put in the shop in a booth. You know, each person got their cubicle where they worked. Right. The Epcot models in the middle. And I am right up in the front, placed next to Harriet Burns. Amazing. Now, I didn't know who she was. I, I wasn't a Disney buff. I just loved the park and I wanted to work there. So months after getting to know Harriet and we became very close friends, I start realizing who this is I'm sitting next to. And everybody who came to the model shop stopped to see Harriet first. She knew everyone. She was there from the beginning. And she was a one of a kind person that will never be forgotten. Uh, so lovely, so kind. I don't know. There's not enough words to describe Harriet Burns. So how fortunate was I to be put right in that position and she and I hit it off as best friends. And that's a great way to even kick off a career like that. I mean, to be able yeah. to sit next to you an Imagineering legend, a Disney legend by title, but also not just in the fact that she, she, she earned that title because of everything oh. she had done. Yes. Yeah. She was there from the beginning. She knew everybody. Everybody was Harriet's best friend. And so every time somebody would come to talk to her, she would introduce me to all these people. So I got to know <laughs> the most important people that designed Disneyland. Um, it turned out that um, Fred Jerger was a friend I met through her. Um, Rolly Crump, Walt Paragoy. Walt was a very good friend of Harriet's. And then my first job, which was given to me, here I am sitting in the model shop and you, everybody starts with trees when you get there. But then once Maggie finds out, you know, what she thinks would suit you, she puts you together with somebody. So after a few days, she takes me up to Rolly Crump's office and there is Walt Paragoy and they're working on the land pavilion. And um, 
And she says, Jim, this is who you're working with. I'll just leave you with them and they'll explain what they want you to do. Well, I, I, I don't think I knew who they were, except that I Crump is a pretty unusual name. And right. I'd gone to school with a girl named Roxana Crump. And, you know, the valley was kind of a small place. I just thought, I wonder if there's a relation here. But Roley introduces himself, and he's in charge of the land pavilion. Walt Paraguay is doing a lot of what's going on in there. And I'm told that Walt had a drawing of a fountain, and he wanted me to sculpt this fountain in miniature and take it through to the finished installation. Well, it seemed daunting to me. I, I had this small sketch. And my job was to turn this into a three-dimensional fountain. And so I left. And Maggie said, well, how'd it go? I said, Maggie, I'm so new here. I don't know what I'm doing. I said, why would you give me this huge job with these really important people? She says, well, you said you could do this. So let's see how you do. I thought, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I have to leave. (laughs) So... I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to pull this off, but, you know, with many jobs like this, you just have to believe you can do it and you jump in. So I did. And Walt and I hit it off and we got along like family. I, I called him my art dad. Uh, he was just very close to me and became my mentor. So many hours sitting with him, talking, him teaching me everything. And every time he had a job, he wanted me to work with him on. So I was honored to be put in that place. And then it turns out he and Harriet were buds. So when he'd come down, the three of us would have a party. And uh, they, I think at the time, they were about twice my age. And I said, they're the youngest people I've ever met. They were just full of fun, adventure. They were so creative and out there. I said, gee, I guess I finally have found my people. Yeah, and it's incredible when you start, I think for most people, the experience of starting in any company is, especially as a, as a new person and maybe a young, career, young in your career, especially young yeah. in a company, you are mostly going to be uh, hanging out with or, or get growing the closest relationships to people, you know, quote unquote, at your level. And any of the veteran executives at the company are, you might encounter them in the hallways, but you're certainly not going to be working with them directly and sitting next to them in the office. And you were really fortunate to have, uh, I mean, those three names uh, are, are really big, big names in in the world of Disney. So I could see how you started your career at Imagineering on such a, uh, or gave yourself such a great start or were fortunate enough to have a great start to be working right alongside those veterans. Yeah. I mean, they had come back. I mean, they were, let's see, Harriet was there. Walt was brought back. I'm not sure about Roly, but because this was Walt Disney's final dream to build Epcot, a lot of people who had retired or moved on all came back to make sure they were going to be part of this because they loved him so much. Uh, so for me, I just get plopped in, uh, coming from nowhere and, you know, starting back with Ken trying to get me in there and then my finally coming in through Mapo and then ending up where I did uh, years later. I, I had met Fred through 
Harriet because she was very close to him, and so was Walt Paragoy. Um, I didn't realize that Fred had sat where I was when he was there. Now, do you know Fred Jerger? I know of his work. Yeah, he's uh, he's done quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, he was there at the park from the beginning and overseeing everything. So a model builder with Harriet the shop and then sent out to the field to make sure everything was done as Walt Disney wanted it. So very, very important. And he wasn't in the shop a lot because he was out in the field. Well, Harriet was very close to him, but here I come along and now I'm sitting where he used to. And <laughs> she asked me a funny thing. I don't know how much Haley told you because you haven't aired her spot yet, right? No, but it will be uh, it'll be out actually in just a couple of days. So, <laughs> All right. well, you know, I'm close to the family, and I've told this story. Um, when Harriet passed away, we were going through her things, and I was helping trying to figure out what things were important, what things meant what, you know, what they wanted to keep, what to get rid of, and we kept running across these cards. Now I'll back up a little because Harriet said to me, Jim, I used to have a friend. And we would send naughty birthday cards to each other. Would you like to do that with me? <laughs> and Harriet, I, Harriet is such a prim and proper Southern belle. Right. She, she did have a naughty side, and I think everyone knows that by now. <laughs> yeah. And, and I thought, oh, this is racy, but hey, she's fun. And uh, I said, of course I will. So we started sending these cards. Well, after she had passed, and we looked through all her stuff and sorting things, we found a lot of these cards from Fred Jurger, but they weren't signed Fred. They were signed Bush Ape. And I, I kept wondering what was going on. And of course, because she had asked me to do this, I'm thinking, who is this Bush Ape? And going through everything, we finally connected that that was Fred Jurger's name with Harriet. Wow. So she started calling me Bush Ape. <laughs> <laughs> It all made sense. <laughs> so, well, that's incredible. Yeah. The relationships were like no other time in my life. In fact, working with Walt all the time, he got a call from Fred, and Fred loved his artwork and said, Walt, I want you to come over to my house. And, and nobody was invited to Fred's house. He was very private. He was out in Bacoima. And he said, I want you to come and see. I designed a whole room around your artwork. I've embedded it into the walls, lit it, everything. He says, come for lunch. So Fred calls me. I mean, uh, Walt calls me up and says, Jim, I want you to come with me to lunch at Fred's. I said, what am I doing that for? He says, because I'm invited and I want you to go with me. So I went to Maggie, the manager, and I said, Look, I've been invited to a very long lunch. I can't imagine I'll be back in an hour. Right. Because where are you going? I said, Walt has invited me to go to Fred's house. She said, Jim, nobody goes to Fred's house. Go spend as much time as you want and tell me everything when you come back. <laughs> so there I found myself at lunch with Walt and Fred. I picked up two bottles of champagne. I wasn't much of a drinker, but I picked up something. And till this day, when I see Asti Spamonti, all it is is a memory of spending an afternoon with Fred Jurger and Walt Paragoy, just like we're old friends. So another one of those right time with the right people at the right place. 
Yeah. And, I, uh, yeah. Just uh, oftentimes I pinch myself with, how do these things happen? But they do. Yeah, you were definitely in a, a good place, uh, and especially the like you said, the the right time and and the yeah. right place to be there. I know that there are at least a couple of Imagineers who also were working on Epcot who have also built names for themselves. I believe. Well, I know that uh, Tony Baxter was working on the Imagination Pavilion, and I believe Joe Rody also started in model building for the Mexico Pavilion, if I'm not mistaken. So- Joe Rody, Joe Joe Rody came in right after I did, maybe three to six months. And he was a new guy. And what the process in the shop was, when somebody new came in, you were paired up with someone who'd been there to help lead them around, show them where the materials were and introduce them to people. So Maggie said, this is Joe Rody. I want you to show him around and get him comfortable. So, yes, Joe came in to work on the Mexican Pavilion, and then everybody knows that story. So uh, he went on to make quite a name for himself. Sure did. And he's still, he's still out there, still working oh, yeah. hard. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, I mean, it was a very important time with all of these old-timers that were there, and then all these new young kids coming in being taught by the Masters. So, uh, there, you probably know, uh, Frank Armitage or have you heard that name? I don't, I'm not as, I have heard his name. I'm not as familiar with him though. Well, he was working on, um, I have a hard time remembering the name of what this ride was, uh, worlds of wonder or it was the body ride, the by the ride through the human body. Was it a uh, body wars? Or it might have ended up that, but I think it was... It could have started some other way. It, but whenever it started, uh, Frank was brought in to do that ride, and then I worked with him as well with a group of medical people that knew how to sculpt body parts and uh, taking a ride that you would ride through a body. So that was an amazing project I was on, and that was through Frank Armitage. Uh, like I say, a lot of my projects had to do with Walt Paragoy. And of course, he was working on the fountain and the balloons that were up above, uh, the entry wall that was a beautiful mosaic that I believe is still there, and uh, murals throughout Land Pavilion. And we even worked on uh, the ride through the plant when you take the boat ride through. Living at the land, yeah. Yeah, so this is a huge uh, plexiglass and fiberglass uh, Kind of like you're a minute, like you're a bug going under through plants. So there were amazing, amazing projects that uh, that just came to you. Uh, one interesting one: I'm walking down the hallway and ran into George McGinnis. I'm not sure if you know him, but did a lot of projects there. And he was working on Communicore and needed a robot. And he had a napkin and made a sketch of this little purple robot. And he said, uh, can you come up with something like this? Well, even like when I started with the fountain, it's like, oh, sure, sure, I can do it. So I went to the hardware store that night, picked up a bunch of pieces, came back to the bandsaw, and in a few days whipped up Smart One. And so Smart One had a long life there and is gone. 
but all of a sudden now is having a resurgence of interest. So part of this event in October is to talk about Smart One and how I came up with what he would look like and how it came together. That's yeah, he definitely has been. I find that there's a lot of this, uh, you could call it retro, uh, Walt Disney World's uh, attractions and figures that are making this comeback in Disney yeah. fandom. And Smart One is definitely one of them. So I guess while we're on the subject, how did you come up with the uh, the idea for Smart One? Well, like I said, I had, and this is how it worked. You got a small sketch from one of the head designers, and then the the shop wed at the time. Uh, later, we would call it dimensional designers, but this is where Imagineering began. Uh, you were given a small sketch, and then they just said, "You're the dimensional designer. You go and take this two dimensional sketch and turn it into a three dimensional object." So I took that sketch, didn't know what I was doing went to a home improvement hardware store and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to get plastic tubes, knobs, spheres, uh, plumbing pipes, sewer pipes, anything I could find that was cylindrical and that I knew if I took it to a bandsaw, I could cut it up in angles and put it back together to look like the sketch I was looking at. So it happened very quick. I mean, I can remember the night when I went to this hardware store, not knowing what I was doing. And the next day I said, well, get the bandsaw and go to work. And it literally came together in a few days. And George saw it. He said, Jim, that's exactly what we want. And there he was. And uh, I said, well, I didn't call him smart one. I called him Robbie the robot. But when I heard he was called smart one, I thought, well, Maybe that's appropriate because I ended up being the smart one <laughs> because I, I ended up cutting twice as many parts as I needed. I thought, if this goes, it'd be really nice if I have my own. <laughs> so I luckily have a bag full of smart one parts. <laughs> that's awesome. I actually can't, now that you mentioned the name Robbie, he does look like a Robbie for sure. But <laughs> it, it's... <laughs> for me, he was my firstborn, but I'm now getting used to calling him Smart One. Uh, <laughs> that's his official name. But I sure hope that when they redo Epcot, that he makes a reappearance, because I think he's got a lot of fans out there. Yeah, at least throw some sort of Easter egg or tribute to him in some way. <laughs> just well, to... I heard at uh, D23, they had a poster of him, a new poster, and I'm desperately looking for that because i'd love to have one they did put up a whole bunch of new posters so i think yeah. you're right they did see that one i think i also saw they were teasing out uh, i don't remember i have to go back and look but uh, he was featured as a i don't think it was a pin but it was some sort of icon that was amongst the other uh epcot symbols that's Feature that were the land, the, the symbol for the lands and the world of motion and universe of energy. Right. I think he, I remember seeing would, him there too. Yeah, he'd be Communicore, so that would be exciting. Um, at the same time we were doing Epcot, we actually redid Fantasyland here in Anaheim. And I was very surprised because you, you've heard my story of being called Dumbo. Right. Well, the first thing they gave me was, Jim, we're trying to redo Dumbo. And we want you to build the model of uh, this being some kind of wind-up toy that Geppetto had in his shop 
with a big T in the middle. And so my first, I, I can't remember, this must have come after the fountain. I don't even remember the order of it. But there I was redesigning Dumbo Ride of all things, considering my past. It all comes it, full circle. Yeah, sure did. Got to work on uh, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, uh, Tinkerbell's Toy Shop, and a really wild thing, uh, Tinkerbell's Flight. Now, you know, she starts up on the Matterhorn. Right. And in the old days, she just slid down a wire and landed. And it was a platform. And when they gave me this job, they said, Jim, we need you to redesign the platform where Tinkerbell lands, uh, which at the time was going to be amongst the trees in Thunder Mountain. So they gave me this huge script on what happens from the moment Tinkerbell left her apartment took the bus to the park, got dressed, and all the script of what people told her, what she said, and everything, just so I would have the whole history of what this means to build this platform where Tinkerbell was going to land into a mattress. <laughs> I still have That's incredible. Yeah, because, you know, she was, I don't know what her condition was, but she did not leave her apartment except to go work at Disneyland. Wow. And she was a sweet little old lady that just kept doing this so she couldn't. And uh, they had all kinds of things to say to her to kind of let her know it was a great show and everybody was thrilled. And so that was just an odd thing they asked me to design, which was a fun piece of the park. Uh, when we were redoing Fantasyland, uh, a group of our shop went down to the park and they were dismantling everything and then uh, casting them and, and making them in fiberglass or some kind of plastic because the things that were originally designed by Fred and Harriet and the, the original model shop were all wood and celastic, this plastic material we used to use, but it was all breaking down. So they were taking things out, redoing them, and a group brought back some pieces to Harriet and it happened to be the windmills from storybook land. And they gave them to Harriet said, Harriet, we know you work so much on storybook land. These are original windmills that we couldn't toss out. We just knew you had to have them. She thanked him. She was so thrilled. They left and she goes, Jen, what do I want with these? <laughs> said, Harriet, that's original Disneyland. What do you mean? What do you do with this? Oh, I don't want them. You can have them. So she gave me the original windmills. Wow. And just a week ago, I met her daughter for lunch. This is uh, Haley's mother. Anne. Right. And she brought me three little lanterns that were from the original model that Walt Disney actually worked with Harriet. And she told me the story. She said, I'm working on these little stained glass lanterns for the little cottages. And Walt Disney came by and he was so jealous that I was working on this. He wanted me to let him play with the lanterns and see how to make them. And Pam just gave those to me. That's incredible. So another wild thing, how does that come around? You know, uh, there, there was one other good story. Harriet had to do something having to do with an animation desk. And we didn't have them in our department, but they got one from the warehouse. Came down to her desk, and it was filthy. You know, it had been in there for years. I said, well, Harriet, let me clean it up for you. And she said, no, no, no. I said, please. 
I'm wiping it down. I pull out a drawer and five little thumbnail sketches done in pencil fell out of the drawer. I picked them up. I said, Harriet, look what I found. She goes, those are the original thumbnail sketches that Mark Davis showed Walt Disney to get the pirate ride started. Oh, wow. I can't believe it. I said, well, let me take him to Mark and he'll sign him for me. Oh, she goes, no, no, no. Don't bring him to him because he'll say they're his. She goes, they've been in there. I don't know how many years. <laughs> Nobody knew about them. You found them. They're yours. Keep them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these crazy little things that would come up or show up. And then now I realize, oh, I've got to be the keeper of these jewels that are one of a kind, you know? Yeah, it's amazing to have that sort of connection and physical part, physical pieces of Disneyland and of yeah. the projects being worked on in the model shop. Not many people can say that. So no, I know that's that's a pretty unusual one. I'm just looking here, and I have my notes that says the Frank Armitage ride we were working on was called Wonders of Life. That's that was that yeah. was the original. Oh, okay. so that was what I'm. What I was thinking of was the specific ride, but the Wonders of Life Pavilion. Yes, that's the the name of the whole pavilion. So that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so that was it. Yeah, pretty that's, amazing. That is pretty amazing. Uh, to go yeah. back to the land, only because it's kind of full circle for me to even be talking to you at this point. Because when I was a kid, my favorite park, I'd say for probably 95% of my life, and I still love the park, is Epcot. Um, just over mm. the last couple of years, Animal Kingdom has kind of taken the number one slot for me. <laughs> but <laughs> especially with that connection to having worked there before, it just uh, it sort of a great uh -huh. affinity for it. But the uh, as a kid, I was always in love with Disney, and especially with Epcot. And the Land Pavilion in particular, I don't know what it is about the Land Pavilion. It has always been my favorite pavilion at Epcot. And I mm -hmm. had for, and I told Haley this story after it wasn't even in the podcast episode, I told her separately, that I actually had these, what I thought were dreams, but ended up being memories from the mm -hmm. time I was a, a really, really young kid, a, a toddler at best my first trip to Disney, I was actually four months old <laughs> and then my mm. family went every year. So my earliest uh -huh. memory is actually of the land pavilion. And I didn't really formulate in my head because it's such an early age, I didn't have it perfectly. And then it changed. So by the time I yeah. remember, I couldn't really connect it, but I saw a picture online years ago, years later, I should say, of the original land pavilion. And all of a sudden it's like when you smell something from your childhood that you haven't smelled uh -huh. in that long. And it just, that memory came back and I'm like, this is what I remember from my childhood. And it's the fountain and the balloons. Uh -huh. And it was that blue color that's not there anymore. But I distinctly remember that big room, blue color, the skylight and uh -huh. you know the glass ceiling. And it had such a, an impact on me as a kid. Wow. It's just kinetic design of it all. Um, and I had heard tales, which I believe are true, that you did sign the fountain somewhere. So I have to ask, <laughs> is that true? I'm well, sure it is. <laughs> well, I've, I've got to start with, you know, this was Walt's idea. And like I said, we worked together so well. 
uh, he gave me free reign to design the fountain. It was his idea, and then he let me take it. But in hearing what you're saying, I, I'm taking this in for myself and Walt. He would just be overwhelmed to think that it had such an impact on your life. So thank you, and I'm sure he's listening. But uh, it is true. I was working on this fountain, and uh, in the miniature, I did not do this. I, I built the miniature. It got approved. There was a little um, controversy over the top because I designed it as Walt had originally. And the day that uh, Marty Scalar and John Hench came to approve it, they didn't like the top, and Walt wasn't there, and they were on a tight schedule. They said, Jim, is there anything you can do? We, we love the fountain, but we'd love the top to be a little different. So I took the fountain top home and the foam that we used, and I went into the shower, you know, the tub shower and pulled the curtains. This foam would fly all over the place. Got my mask on, and I sculpted a new top, brought it back the next day, and they said, Jim, that's it. Now, Walt wasn't happy with this because it was his design and it had been changed. Right. So. I never even told him about my name. And now that I think about it, I wish I would have put his name in it as well. But I guess the ego was just kind of running away with me. And I just said, it's never going to say sculpted by Jim Sarno. And I think in the fish panel, I could use those swirls and hide the name Sarno in there. So it was rather brave because I think I could have been fired if they ever knew this. And uh, do you know who Blaine Gibson is? I do. Yeah. Very big Imagineer. Yeah. Yeah. And I might say, and maybe Haley told you, that was Harriet's last boyfriend. Yes. She did mention that. (laughs) Harriet and Blaine were a sweet couple. But uh, Blaine had heard I was doing this fountain. And he told Maggie, he says, you know, this really is sculpture and it's in clay. I really think this needs to be in my department. And, you know, I, I could sculpt, but I was no great sculptor. And I was kind of blown away that this might be a possibility that I'd be working under Blaine. So the two of them worked it out and she let me stay in the model shop. And he agreed as long as he could oversee my work. So he would come by and show me techniques. He even gave me some of his tools to work with that I still have. Wow. And I was, yeah, I was just in shock. So when I went to Tahunga to do the big full size, that is when this idea hit me to put Sarno in there. And I hit it so well that once I pointed out, people know, but it, it's not easily seen. In fact, when I was there for the opening, I heard the guides taking trainees around how to walk people through the land pavilion. And someone said, we heard the artist signed his name, but we don't know where, we don't know what his name is. And I said, and I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it remained. <laughs> Plead the fifth. Well, you know, sometimes you do crazy things and that was my crazy thing. There. Yeah. And you know, now it's just a, a fun story, a fun Disney legends that, yeah. uh, yeah will be I'm sure told many times yeah. that one that one imagineer who was brave enough to actually sign his name and, <laughs> and live to tell the tale. <laughs> yes. Well and you know, even Walt who had done so many things there, 
it came down to that front entrance wall that he was so proud of. And he said, I want a plaque with my name on that. And they fought him and fought him. I believe he got it. And this trip I go, I'm going to make sure it's there because, you know, as an artist, there is the sense, I know I'm working for the Disney company, but Walt Disney is not here. And for everything to be thought that it was built by Walt Disney is ridiculous. And so now we're in a time when people really want to know who were the people behind this. We want to know their stories. We want to know how it happened. So it's, it's just how it came about. But I'm pleased I did it. And I'm glad it stayed and was never found. Yeah, thankfully. Uh, of course, it's not <laughs> there anymore to be found, unfortunately. But it's... Uh... I, I do understand why, and it's a different. I still love, even with the, the change, it's still my favorite pavilion. So uh, mm. now we have Soren there and everything else. Um, yeah, I, I actually yeah. loved Imagination. I worked on that. Uh, first, they wanted me to design uh, Dreamfinder's uh, transportation, his, oh, his yeah. uh, car. And right. I didn't quite get the concept and I did a few things and they said no that's not quite what we want so they put me on other things they said we want you to make where Figment lives and uh, some of his where he hangs out so I got to work on that a little bit too which was fun. That is amazing. Did you work on any other projects at Epcot? Um, a little bit on the Mexican Pavilion but uh, the emphasis for me was on the land pavilion, Communicore and Imagination. That's where my time was spent. That's great. Oh, and yeah. Spaceship Earth, too. I, uh, I actually worked on the design for the uh, entrance and the exit of Spaceship Earth. It was like a time tunnel. And yes. then you, as you go up, there's all these images of history and the story of man. And then I did some of the props that were in there as well. So. Well, that's great. I definitely love Spaceship Earth. So I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Um, and the old design of um, the Seas Pavilion, which I believe has changed, but the original design I did in the model shape or model form. Yes, so it is different now, but I yep. remember the original version well with the hydrolators, the pre-show yep. movie, and mm -hmm. then going into the, uh, the sea cabs and then getting into the aquarium. Every time yeah. I rode the hydrolators as a kid, I was definitely convinced I was, I, I knew I, I was, you know, it's very easy to see I'm not on the ocean. So we're not going <laughs> under the ocean, but I was convinced we were going maybe 50 feet, like under the ground to this aquarium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly That's convincing. pretty exciting. I mean, they really knew how to do it right so that you, you really got lost in another world. So yeah. Very well, exciting. When was the first time you actually saw one of your creations? I, you know, come to life after I know you, you know, you said you worked on the fountain while it was still in development and put the finishing touches on it. But I guess like when was the first time you saw even guests interacting with something that you had built or designed? Well, I would think it had to be Dumbo and Mr. Toad, uh, even Tinkerbell's toy shop and this landing platform, because if I have it right, I, I, I probably should look up the dates. I, I think we opened Fantasyland before Epcot. And if it was, then that would have been the first. But if Epcot had been first, it would have been uh, Robbie or Smart One watching people react to him and the fountain. 
those two things. So it is kind of a weird thing when you realize nobody knows who you are and that it was so much a part of your life. And to see all these people admiring and the comments, and of course you want to hear them. You're like, what do they think of it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if anything you've done lasted 10, 20, 30 years, you, you did something right. Yeah, there's not a lot. Well, that's not true. There is a lot of Disney that does last that long, but so much changes that yeah. it is quite incredible if something does, uh, if you are able to say that you created something that is still there to this day. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, the surprise now is this resurgence of interest in history uh, about how this all happened. Uh, so all of us who are being able to tell our stories and, and share stories of these, uh, iconic people who have come and gone that were just at the heart of Disneyland. Yeah. What I, I mean, I especially love it as a fan, of course, and hearing the stories is, is something, the questions that I always had who, like you said, who designed this and how was it designed and who were these people? And, you know, it's, it's very mystical as a, yeah. a kid, especially, but then even as an adult, you're like, who are these people and how do I talk yeah. to them? <laughs> um, but you know, that part of that is just the appeal of the fact that I, that I love Disney, but the other yeah. side of it is especially because, which I definitely want to ask you about, um, what I love about hosting this show is, is connecting the people that are listening to people like yourself who worked on the magic and, and designing all of these, these amazing uh, things that we, we love and have fond memories of and hearing the stories that if you were to remove the fact that this was Disney could be any other company um, and make it just seem a lot more realistic and grounded that someone could do this because otherwise it's just, those, you know, it, it's like those imagineering geniuses, like I'll never be one of them. That's yeah. <laughs> like, I'll never be well, able to do that. My own experience in talking to Harriet, uh, I was telling her that I loved uh, small world. And one specific thing as a kid for me was the hippo, this big, beautiful hippo that mm-hmm. looked like it was paper mache. I, I think that's how she originally made it. And as I'm telling Harriet how much that meant to me and how much I loved going there to see him, she said, Jim, I made him. <laughs> I was blown away. Yeah. And uh, just recently on Facebook, I posted that picture because to think that as a kid, I was mesmerized and then I got to be Harriet's dear friend and work alongside her. So, you know, all those dreams we all have, and the fantasy that we all saw with Tinkerbell and her wand. I mean, there is something to that. Uh, Crazy things happen in life that are magical. So when did you officially, I guess, stop working for Disney? And what have you been doing since? Well, uh, when we finished Epcot, uh, they were waiting for Tokyo to come about. And so I did a few things on Tokyo Disney and then it was very slow and they kept telling us, look busy, look busy. We have to lay you off if not. And I tried to get into other departments, couldn't find anything and got tired of waiting. And I said, please lay me off. This is hard <laughs> watching. You know, you watch your friends every week. Yeah. 
And so it was time to go. And I left and I said to myself, what would I do after this? And I wanted to travel. So I went and got a job at the airlines. Uh, seven or eight years, I traveled all over the world, and saw everything. And in between, would get called in to do some job like Teddy Ruxpin. So came back to do Teddy Ruxpin. Um, worked with Walt Paraguay and a few other design companies. Uh, kind of was all over the place. I started a furniture design business. And then I moved to Monterey with the airlines up to Monterey, California. And I met McGraw-Hill, the publishing company, and became an artist for them, teaching kids all over the country uh, art, all kinds of art, to decorate their corporate buildings. So that, I had a gig with them for 23 years, I believe it was. Wow. Yeah. And uh, still very good friends with them. And now I have moved to Santa Barbara, where I'm working at the City College in the glass department with stained glass and fusing glass. Uh, continue to teach kids and then doing various types of art for myself. So it just, you know, once it's in your bloodstream, you, that's, this is what you do. Yeah, for sure. And I have seen some of your more recent work and you still have the talent, definitely. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely a skill. If you continue to practice, you, you keep it, you get better at it. So um, yeah. And, and I was one of those kids that couldn't focus. So if any kids listen to this, I was told my whole life, Jimmy, you've got to focus on something. You're all over the place. If I hadn't been all over the place, I would have never fit in. At Disney, you had to know a little of everything to be able to design. And so it worked, and it continues to work because creativity is about changing and trying new things. So that's what it was supposed to be, and it seems to continue. Absolutely. And speaking yep. of kids that are listening, most of the people who listen, um, well, there are, I should say, not most, but there are a lot of uh, listeners who are either in high school or in college, um, an early career, who right. are aspiring Imagineers, would love to be an Imagineer someday. And I always try to give them as much advice as I can, just as a former cast member from my experience mm -hmm. and knowledge, but it's different hearing it from an actual Imagineer. So uh, what <laughs> advice would you offer to somebody who is looking to pursue Imagineering as a career and how to make that a reality? Well, I'd have to say with all the kids I teach, and I, I always tell them, I say, you don't have to be the best at what you do, but you really do have to get along with the people you work with. Now, for us, it was a collaborative adventure. We work together constantly. I hear now in Imagineering, it's a little more isolated, a lot more computer work than hands-on. So it might be different, but I would still say, be good at what you do, and mostly show up and get along with the people you work with. And for me, that worked, and I think that works in life. There's plenty of people who can do a lot of things, but get along with who you're with. Yeah, that's true for, I think, just about any field, unless you truly are in a, a <laughs> field you're doing yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> right, uh, then, you can, then you don't have to get along, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely working with people is an important skill and is definitely, I mean, you were fortunate to, um, 
to be placed with the people you were placed with, but you also had yeah. to get along with them regardless of who they were. So that's right. That's and uh, and, and listen, you know, I think nowadays so many people want to talk that listening is a very critical lost art. There's so much to learn if you just listen. And when I was there, I did a lot of listening. I took it all in. And so that's another secret. That's true. You listen long enough, eventually you'll be the one doing the talking and others will be doing the listening. (laughs) There you go. It it sinks in if you listen up, you know? Exactly. Um, Well, Jim, I guess for anyone who is interested in following you, uh, you know, either on social media or websites or any other place, where can people go to learn more about you, what you're up to now and follow along with anything you might be doing? Well, I am on Facebook, Jim Sarno, as well as my website, jimsarno.com. Nice and easy to remember. Uh, Also Instagram. And then uh, Retro WDW will be having this event. I'm sure they will uh, telecast in some way. And there is my podcast with them. So people can follow up and listen to that one as well. I'll be sure to plug all of that in the show notes and as we tease out this episode and beyond. So I'll make sure everybody is aware of all those places as uh, as they look to find more about you and, and uh, keep in touch. So, uh, okay. well, Jim, it was really a, a pleasure chatting with you and, and getting to hear all these stories. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share them all with me. You're very welcome. Happy to do it. And if in your editing or in any of your posts, if you'd like some photographs of anything in particular, let me know and I'll send those off to you. With that, we close out episode 59 of the Imagineer podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview with Jim. As I talked about in the beginning and throughout the episode, he worked on so many classic attractions at Epcot. It was amazing to speak with an Imagineer who was working on the opening day team for Epcot and built some of the attractions and experiences that we know and love in Epcot today and from our memories from things that have passed. But I would like to turn the conversation over to you. Which of Jim Sarno's creations, whether it be a particular attraction or a particular part of Epcot, is your favorite or perhaps the most memorable to you. You can send me your feedback, as always, in so many different ways. You can either reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Imagineer Podcast. Feel free to post about it or share it into your story, or even just send me a message to let me know your thoughts on this particular question in this particular episode. You can also follow me over on Twitter at Imagineer News, 
or I would encourage you to join our Facebook group, The Imagination, The Imagineer Podcast, Disney fan community, which is what you could type into your Facebook search bar or go to facebook.com slash Imagineer Podcast and click on the groups tab, which will take you over to the imagination in case you would like to chat with others about their thoughts about this particular episode and all other Disney topics. And lastly, we have a new podcast app, or I should say a new social media app where you can follow our podcast, which is over on TikTok, which I know a lot of you younger folks listening are probably on that social media platform. I started posting over there so you could follow me on TikTok over at Imagineer Podcast 2 if you would like to see some more short form video content over there. Of course, if you don't already subscribe to the show, I hope you'll hit that subscribe button, whether you're listening in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, no matter what your favorite podcast app is, hitting the subscribe button lets you be the first to know when a new podcast episode becomes available, and you never know when I might drop in a special bonus episode here or there. But one of the best things you could do for the show is to share out the podcast. Whether you share out this episode, if you loved it, or your favorite podcast episode, the podcast as a whole, or even some of the posts we have over on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, no matter, again, what your favorite podcast or social media channel is, uh, hitting that share button does so very much to help the Imagineer podcast, as does leaving a rating and a review in the iTunes store. Uh, I have to thank so many of you who have rated and reviewed the show recently, including Andrea Jenks, Joke in 2016, uh, Katak, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, Will Thrill 09, Alejandro 100, Geoff 117. Uh, thank you all so very much for leaving your thoughts and reviews in the iTunes store. And I cannot tell you again how much it does to really help this podcast community out and let others know that the Imagineer Podcast is a fun and entertaining place to learn more about all things Disney. As always, I would encourage you, if you would like to take your love of the Imagineer podcast one step further and get some extra special content and perks in return to join the Imagineer Society. You can learn more about the Imagineer Society by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast, which will take you over to that page. And essentially, you help to support the show and in return, get extra special benefits, including early access to every podcast episode, bonus podcast episodes just for the Imagineer Society, monthly video calls with me, as well as the other Imagineer Society members, as well as some other special perks and benefits as well. So go to patreon.com slash Imagineer Podcast to learn more about that. And lastly, I would encourage you to learn more about our partners, including the Kingdom Insider. Christy has, of course, been on the show before and is incredibly knowledgeable about all things Disney. I trust her when it comes to posting Disney news. She only posts things that Disney has formally announced, which I appreciate, and has some excellent tips, especially if you are a Disney mom or parent who's taking young kids to the parks. That is what Christy does, so she offers some great advice 
for parents to take their children to Walt Disney World and to really maximize their time, even as just adults only, perhaps on a date night, uh, when, you, when it comes to visiting Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, and so much more. And check out our partners over at Academy Travel. Academy Travel is a diamond earmarked travel agency with over a thousand agents who can help you. They've been helping guests for over the last 23 years to plan their trips to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Aulani, uh, so many places. And again, they have been recognized by Disney themselves for their exceptional service and all of that is at literally no additional cost to you. So head over to Academy Travel to learn more about how you can plan your next trip to Walt Disney World or Disneyland or any other Disney destination around the world. Lastly, but perhaps most importantly, I really do hope you are doing everything you possibly can to create a better and a happier life for yourself and for those around you. Do what you love, go after your dreams. Life is too short to be doing something you don't love. So go after whatever it is you're passionate about and that makes you happiest. And remember, as always, that quote from Horizons, if you can dream it, you can do it. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Just make believe You're a tiny little seed A tiny little seed that's reaching up To meet your need With the right amount of faith And the right amount of earth You'll grow to see the sun shine On your day of birth Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine above Listen to the land Listen to the land Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine above Listen to the land, listen to the land When springtime comes, how can you tell?